whenever you're ready. All right, thank you. May it please the court and counsel. I'm Kelly Janetta. I represent the plaintiff in this case, Robert Goosen. Um, Mr. Goosen, my client, is uh, here today in the, uh, um, in the galley. The district court granted summary judgment in this case, concluding that there was no evidence from which a jury could conclude that plaintiff was able to perform the essential functions of the job um, with or without accommodation. And uh, in dismissing the plaintiff's complaint in its entirety, the district court um, said that the only issue before it was the reasonable accommodation claim. Um, but I don't want the court to lose sight of the fact that while it is true that the reasonable accommodation claim was the basis for the defendant's motion to dismiss, there was also a claim made in the plaintiff's complaint that was a uh, disability discrimination claim. Now, both of those claims, the disability discrimination claim and the um, failure to accommodate claim, um, depend upon whether or not Mr. Goosen can demonstrate that he is a qualified individual um, uh, able to perform the essential functions of the job with or without accommodation. Let me ask you really quickly about the disability discrimination. It's very curious. I understand that he was pro se at the time, but it's very curious yes. that the disability discrimination case uh, claim got dropped uh, somehow or forgotten, whatever however you want to put it. And I'm wondering if at some point when he was proceeding pro se, whether he may have said to the court something like, you know, um, I'm not pursuing that claim anymore or anything like that. Is there anything like that in the record? Not, no, I'm not aware of anything like that in the record. And like I said, um, the defendant did only bring the motion on the basis of the um, the reasonable accommodation. And so, um, in essence, when the court, when the district court dismissed um, the complaint, you know, it dismissed both claims. But that second claim um, was never part of the original motion, and it was never. Um, it, it just wasn't addressed, so I just I, I just don't want to lose sight of that claim. Well, um, but both it, it appeared I'm, I may be misreading this, but that the district court didn't see any material distinction between the two claims. Um, if if they couldn't show a reasonable accommodation, then there couldn't be a disability discrimination. Is the way I read it. But now, am I reading it wrong? I I think that what the court may have been thinking, although I don't believe it was articulated in the order, um, the court was thinking that um, because Mr. Goosen could not demonstrate that he was able to perform the essential functions of the job with or without accommodation, um, that claim would fail too, even though the court didn't address that claim. That's, but that's that may I... be a, what, what it was thinking. Um, and, and that's true. I mean, that claim would not survive unless we can demonstrate that he was able to perform the essential functions of the job with or without accommodation. And and so that point I want to spend my, initially spend my time on. Um, I, I There's a material fact question um, that, um, uh, a significant material fact question about what defendant meant when um, it said that um, in order to perform the essential functions, functions of the job, the mechanic needs to be able to hold his or her arms outstretched for more than three hours. Now, 
throughout the litigation, we were operating under the assumption that, you know, arms outstretched means what that means. Arms outstretched, you know, straight out from the body. In its brief, the defendant said at page 36 that the witness affidavits, and I'll get to the witness affidavits in a minute, there's that issue about whether they should have been excluded or not. MnDOT said that the witness affidavits are based on the false premise that an outstretched arm held close to the body or braced by equipment is not an outstretched arm. And there was some discussion about what does outstretched arm mean during oral argument at the lower court. Counsel talked about, well, does that mean, you know, outstretched arms, I can't remember the phrase he used, but, you know, like a zombie, those are my words, or T-Rex arms, you know, held with your elbows bent. They again said it in their brief that there is a question about whether or not outstretched arms means arms outstretched or held close to your body. If what MnDOT means is meant, and it seems that they do mean this, that outstretched arms includes arms held close to the body, that is a significant fact question because it begs the question, what would Dr. McCarty have said if he understood that the three-hour restriction that he was placing on my client about, you know, being able to hold your arms outstretched included time with your elbows bent? His restriction might have been different. He might have said, you know, who knows, he can perform a combination of work with his elbows bent and arms straight out in front of him for four hours or five hours or six hours. We don't know. Is there any affirmative evidence in the record that he could do this even if he couldn't do that? There is nothing that says he can't. He hasn't been restricted by his physician. Isn't that the plaintiff's burden, though? That's the thing I'm getting hung up on. I mean, yes, there could be a genuine issue, but the plaintiff has to show to survive a dispositive motion that he could do this, or there needs to be something in the opinion or in the record suggesting that that's the case. Well, the doctor's report, the workability report, specifically addresses outstretched arms. It does not restrict him with respect to elbows bent. But it doesn't really say that. It just says outstretched arms, right? It does say outstretched arms. And nobody deposed the doctor, and nobody got any kind of clarifying statement from the doctor. So what you have are two interpretations, and I guess your argument is that the interpretation by MnDOT is on its face unreasonable and adds a restriction that doesn't actually exist in the workability. That's right. Right, because what MnDOT and what everybody was operating under was, you know, the restrictions that were outlined by Dr. McCarty in his workability report. And there were a number of restrictions, but the one that is at issue here is the three hours arms outstretched. And 
arms outstretched means arm, I mean, if, if you can take judicial notice of the fact that um, any dictionary will express that arms outstretched means arms fully extended from the body. This is not arms outstretched. This is arms outstretched. Or, or even this. This might be arms outstretched, you know, held out to your side or, or arms outstretched over, overhead. This but, is but not arms that, outstretched. You, know, you just think about the way people with repetitive motion injuries, how they work. You can work right at your, your eye level with your arms this far outstretched. Uh, mm -hmm. That's right slightly at eye level. And that, over a period of three or four hours a day, may be um, disabling, right? I mean, it could be, but the, Dr. McCarty didn't say that. Dr. McCarty put, put a number of restrictions on Mr. Goosen, um, none of which are at issue here, except the outstretched arms. And and my argument is this is our outstretched arms, or this is outstretched arms. There there was a specific restriction having to do with him, with Mr. Goosen not being able to hold his arms overhead for more than six hours. Um, but but that's that's not an issue here either. So um, I just think that creates a fact issue. I think a jury um, could conclude that if MnDOT um, means that arms outstretch includes arms with elbows bent, um, there there is a fact issue about whether or not Goosen could have performed the essential functions of the job. Um, just another point that I want to make about that particular issue, um, there, and I, I understand it's the plaintiff's burden to um, make a prima facie case, um, but MnDOT is saying that there, um, there are no accommodations that it could provide the plaintiff to, um, that would allow him to perform the essential functions of the job, and it's MnDOT's burden to demonstrate that that's the case. Um, and so I'll, I'll address the, um, the reasonable accommodation piece separately, but one more point on um, the three hours or more. Um, MnDOT has not um, undertaken any time studies, and I know that MnDOT has said, well, what does that mean, um, and why does it matter? Well, it matters because um, the supervisors um, who testified in this case just, just said, you know, well, it requires more than three hours. You know, to perform the essential functions of the job, you have to be able to hold your arms outstretched for more than three hours. But there isn't any documentation that supports that. The position description um, doesn't support that either. And if it was that important, um, one would think that it would have been um, uh, articulated in the position description. Um, I'm getting a little bit low on time, and so I want to um, pivot to the next, the next issue. And that's with respect to those affidavits. Um, the decision of the district court to exclude the affidavits was um, an abuse of discretion, and and I just I want to quote a piece of Lloyd's versus cert certain underwriters. Um, when fashioning a remedy, the district court should consider the reason for noncompliance, the surprise and prejudice to the opposing party, the extent to which allowing the information or testimony would disrupt the order and efficiency of the trial, and the importance of the information or testimony. Um, the plaintiff has has identified the reason for his noncompliance. Um, he was a federal pro se litigant until October 25 when I got involved. Depositions were already scheduled. Written discovery was already undertaken. The original discovery deadline was December 1, um, but we were able to get it extended until December 31. I didn't become aware of Tyson Wistrom as potential witnesses until it was sometime mid-December or shortly before Christmas. And as soon as I got their affidavits in January, 
I turn them over to the other side. This isn't a situation where, like in most or all of the cases where the, where the courts decide to exclude the evidence, where um, I held on to those affidavits and didn't disclose them until the eve of trial or didn't disclose them until, um, you know, even a month before trial. This case was scheduled for trial in July. Um, the affidavits were turned over to the other side in January, um, and they brought a motion for summary judgment in March. They had the affidavits for two full months before bringing their motion for summary judgment. And so these facts are different than most or all of the cases where the, where the court does decide um, that it's, it's, it's too little too late. Did, did you ever um, uh, move uh, for a lesser consideration or um, a lesser sanction or ask for a reconsideration on the dismissal uh, on the striking of these affidavits, which really results in a dismissal because the evidence is no longer in the record to to contest? No, I did not. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I, I just didn't. No, I didn't ask for a lesser sanction. One could have been um, imputed. However, the court could have imputed a lesser sanction. I'm not sure what that sanction would have been, maybe ordering the plaintiff or me to, um, you know, pay for their depositions. Make, make them available. Uh, right, or make them, make them available. And that's the other thing. Um, they had those affidavits for two months. They didn't say, hey, you know what, gosh, we weren't anticipating this. Um, would it be okay if we take their depositions? That didn't happen. The other thing is that... Um, uh, these were their employees. They didn't have to take their depositions. They could have picked up the phone and called them and said, hey, you know, what the heck is going on? What are you basing this opinion on? You know, have you considered these other factors? They didn't do anything like that. Um, the, um, uh, the underwriter's case also um, said that, you know, in, in that case, the um, underwriters had disclosed Mr. Fowles in late January, and the court said that, um, if, if underwriters had disclosed fouls in late January or at any time prior to the time that the defendant filed its motion for summary judgment, the defendant could have moved for an extension of the discovery deadline to take his deposition, but it didn't. Um, and, and I'm a smoke. Uh, fouls wasn't disclosed until June. They had the affidavit in January, and they didn't disclose until June. That is just simply not what happened here. Um, and I have about two seconds left. And well, I want to just I want to oh. jump to reasonable accommodation in particular, oh, okay. which is I think what you want to get to, which is um, I think the real problem with that claim may be different than whether it was qualified. It may actually be that there were no spots available, and if we follow out of circuit case law, um, you don't have to bump somebody under under a collective bargaining agreement. So please address that. So um, right. So um, the. Uh, um, what the what the law is is that um, a defendant is not required to bump somebody from a position if it would interfere with their collectively bargained rights. That's not the case here. Um, it's the opposite. Um, Mr. Goosen could have bumped a more junior employee um, by not allowing him to do that. Um, uh, would essentially um, uh, impact his rights. And, and there's something um, else that I wanted to, to say before I'm um, 
kicked off the podium, <laughs> and that is that um, in the transcript, in um, appendix that starts at page 142, um, where the transcript of the Watt meeting takes place, um, and I'm sorry, I will, here we go, um, it's at appendix 158, um, one of the MnDOT individuals involved in those meetings said that, but we have an offer and the ability to put you in a different role, a different position that we can accommodate and provide accommodations as needed that would allow you to continue to be employed in a very similar role. It's just in-house as opposed to being remote. So the, the Watt team talked about we have the ability to put you into a different position. They said, we have a very high level of confidence that this is a reasonable accommodation for you. And then they slammed the door on that about a week later when one of the supervisors said, well, we can't let you go into a um, shop position because um, you can't climb in and out of a truck for more than seven hours a day. And the district court said in a footnote that there is a fact issue with respect to that seven hours. Could I just follow up with one, one last question, Please. which is um, why isn't this collective bargaining agreement issue just a breach of contract? It's not a reasonable accommodation issue. It's just that, look, you breached your collective bargaining agreement. We're going to bring a claim against you. That seems to reconcile all the case law. Um. I don't know that it is. Uh, it's, it's. I don't know that it would be a grievance because the uh, because MnDOT didn't even address it at the time. Um, what happened was MnDOT never said we don't have an available position for you. What MnDOT said was we can't put you into that position because you can't get in and out of a truck for more than seven hours a day. They never said, hey, you know what, we don't have a position. Hey, we can't allow you to bump a more junior employee. It was just never addressed. And so there was never a grievance filed because it just wasn't an issue that was ever addressed. But, you know, I get that. But aren't the requirements of the job actually more strenuous? Because um, you put him in the, in the uh, he's a heavy equipment mechanic, right? You put him into the heavy equipment uh, mechanic spot um, that's, uh, that doesn't travel, right. like, rather than spending two hours a day driving the truck, mm -hmm. he spends those two hours a day working, right? And so how are, I mean, it doesn't seem how that could be an accommodation to anything. So, right, I understand what you're saying, um, and I think that that does raise an interesting question, that if, if he is restricted from performing the job of a field mechanic, why would he be able to perform the job of a shop mechanic? Yeah, and they, they, they ultimately said he couldn't, but, right? but for this very But for different period, reasons. Yeah. They never said you can't be a shop mechanic because um, you can't hold your arms outstretched for more than three hours. They said that was the case with respect to the, um, the remote position, but not with respect to the shop mechanic. Um, and, and one thing about that remote position, the position description does say that they work remotely for 10 percent of the time. Well, sometimes they work eight hours a day, sometimes they work 10 hours a day, depending on if it's summer or winter. And so 10 percent of 10 hours is one hour, right? And um, it's something less, <laughs> 48 minutes or something less for an eight-hour day. And um, 
Mr. Goosen could perform um, the function of, of arms outstretched for more than three hours. So if he was only working remotely for 10% of the time or an hour a day approximately, that restriction wouldn't even keep him from doing that work. So, so you're right. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Why could he do the job of, of, of a shop mechanic and not a field mechanic? I think that all goes to um, the notion that there are fact issues here that a jury could determine. And Dr. McCarty, at the very least, needs to understand that what MnDOT's talking about with respect to the three hours is that that includes time with your arms, you know, with elbows bent. And if that's the case, maybe he's um, only restricted from doing that work for more than four or five or six hours. Who knows? Thank right. you. Thank you. Mr. Mason. May it please the court. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Assistant Attorney General Matt Mason, appearing on behalf of Appellee Minnesota Department of Transportation, which I'll refer to as MnDOT during my argument this afternoon. Under controlling Eighth Circuit precedent, the district court properly granted summary judgment in MnDOT's favor and dismissed appellant's complaint in its entirety. MnDOT respectfully requests the court to affirm for three reasons. First, there is no genuine issue of material fact that appellant is not qualified to perform the essential functions of the heavy equipment field mechanic or HEFM position with or without a reasonable accommodation. Second, there is no genuine dispute of material fact that appellant failed to make a facial showing that a reasonable accommodation was possible. And third, the district court did not abuse its discretion by excluding the untimely witness affidavits. And I'd like to address that point last, because I think ultimately it doesn't matter whether they were excluded or not, which I'll get to in just a moment. Well, I don't want to take you out of your order, but I, I'm, I guess I sh um, uh, was uh, shared some of the concerns just Rossett, I think, if I don't want to put words in his mouth. But I'm, I'm really curious about why the shop position wouldn't work. Apparently they said that it would, and he could do the he could do the shop job even if he couldn't do the field job. Uh, what what's your response to that? And also then, as part of that, why? why as I understand, there was never an, it was never initially an issue that there no position was available, so we never got to the bumping question. Correct. So I think appellant's argument with respect to the existence of a reasonable accommodation focuses solely on the issue of the HEM position. And appellant relies almost entirely on comments that were made at this April 28th meeting about there being a pretty high level of confidence that a role could be a viable solution. But I think there are several problems here. First, appellant really doesn't explain why it matters that he left the meeting under this impression and doesn't cite any case law demonstrating its relevance. Secondly, and relatedly, it was undisputed below and up until now for the first time that there was that no officer offers or promises were ever made. This issue was not raised below. The parties didn't dispute that. Also, this is in line with the Kalail case decided by the Eighth Circuit, where we had a very similar situation. There, the employee received similar 
you know, statements from the employer about how they may be able to accommodate this, or may be able to provide an accommodation, or even that they would be able to. The Eighth Circuit rejected the argument, found that there were no genuine issues of material fact for trial because no offers or promises were made. But I think the larger issue here is that under well-established case law, to show that a reasonable accommodation, pardon, to show that reassignment is a reasonable accommodation, appellant bore the burden of making a facial showing that he qualified for the position and that one was available. It is undisputed in the record that there were no vacant HEM positions at any relevant time. So but, appellant but, cannot well, carry his Let me stop burden. you there, though. Was he told that was the reason? I'm not entirely certain when he was told that was the reason, but I think it's ultimately irrelevant because well, it's well, still... Be, if, he, if he could have bumped under the union contract, why is it irrelevant? Well, I think the union argument itself really has no basis in factor law here. It has no basis in fact because there's no evidence in the record that there was a less senior mechanic to bump. This argument comes solely from the fraud and ice affidavit. But even with that, there's no evidence that bumping would have even been possible under the circumstances. Only that there was a mechanism to do so provided there was a less senior mechanic. And the CBA itself is not in the record. And this argument with respect to bumping contradicts well-established Eighth Circuit law that employers are not required to move employees from their positions to open roles for others as a reasonable accommodation. In fact, the Cravens case that appellant, or that appellant relies on states this point explicitly and delineates many limitations on an accommodation of last resort, which is reassignment. Now I'd like to jump back to the essential functions analysis, if, if that is all right with your honors. Um, the district court properly held that appellant failed to show a genuine dispute of material fact about his status as a qualified individual with or without reasonable accommodation. And getting to this question of whether the district court dismissed a claim sua sponte, appellant has self-limited any standalone dis disability discrimination claim to this exact issue, which is made apparent throughout his briefing, both before this court and below. Both of his claims rise and fall on whether he's a qualified individual with or without a reasonable accommodation. So why isn't there a genuine issue? I, I just want to cut to the chase. Yep. This versus this. And, and the argument is, is we thought MnDOT mentioned, thought this, the doctor thought it meant this, but it actually may mean this, and there's evidence in the record showing that. Well, I think there's no evidence in the record with respect to what the doctor meant. And again, it's appellant's burden to show that he's qualified to perform these functions. I think the district court properly referred to these as exceedingly exacting factors, and I think we're kind of losing sight of the relevant analysis. Really what's being disputed here is the amount of time that a party can work with outstretched arms, which is just one factor in the essential functions analysis delineated by the regulations. And the only evidence supporting appellant's arguments against this factor is his own subjective experiences, but under well-established Eighth Circuit precedent, an employee's subjective experience is of no consequence in an essential functions determination, as the district court discussed in its thorough analysis of the Drapinski case. Well, before you, before you sort of move on, I just want to I want to understand this. I think you're saying that this versus this does not matter. I'm just trying to make it really easy because there's no evidence that he could he could do a 90 degree thing. Correct. I think it wouldn't matter either way, but really. Down below, my understanding is that the parties interpreted the outstretched arm requirement generally as outstretched in front of you, but not, you know, three hours in one go, cumulatively over the course of the shift. But again, 
This only disputes one of the factors, and this is not a new multi-factor test in the circuit. It has been applied by this court in courts within the Eighth Circuit for decades, and nothing in the case law states or suggests that a possible dispute about one factor, like we may have here, creates a genuine issue of material fact for trial. But wasn't that the factor that the district court said the plaintiff um, basically failed on? I mean, as I read the district court, they said there's dispute of facts about other, other limitations, or they didn't, or they weren't material. But that was the one that the district court centered on, wasn't it? Are you talking about the, the outstretched arms restriction? Yes, yes. yes, it was, and that's what's at issue here on appeal. But again, that's a physical demand of one of the essential functions, and really, it just boils down to a dispute about the amount of time spent performing it. And again, the only support given by appellant is his subjective experience, which is irrelevant and the properly excluded witness affidavits. And when you look at the Drapinski case, as well as the Minion case, the Guardia case, the Scruggs case, and the Alexander case, the parties disputed this very factor about the amount of time spent performing the function at issue. And instead of, dis- instead of finding a genuine issue of material fact for trial, the Eighth Circuit affirmed the district court's grant of summary judgment in favor of the employer after relying on factors such as the position description, the consequences of not performing the function, and on the employer's judgment, which all happened here, which just makes sense. Multi-factor tests are used across many different areas of law. These tests would simply be impractical and unworkable if any time there was a dispute. As to one of the factors, the matter would proceed to a jury trial. So if the court accepts the undisputed premise that repair and maintenance work is an essential function and that the ability to work with arms outstretched for over three hours cumulatively per shift, there are no genuine issues of material fact that appellant is not qualified without a reasonable accommodation. And, and you, fa- you said that it wouldn't matter if the affidavits had not been excluded. Correct. Is, is that true as to that particular statement? Because it seemed to me that they were saying, well, nobody ever has to do that. Well, I think really the substance of the affidavits gets at the amount of time one spends working with their arms outstretched. So again, it would really only relate to this factor. And when you cancel out appellant's subjective experience, like the Eighth Circuit precedent says you must, we're really only left with a dispute by these individuals about the time spent working with outstretched arms. And one point I'd like to make about them. Appellant makes it sound like Mindot could have simply called them up at any point. That is not the case. Two of these individuals were retired in 20 of 2020, and one left MnDOT in May of 2022. They were no longer MnDOT employees. And it is also simply not— Why does that matter, though, if they spent years in the position? Well, I, I, it matters in the sense that it's not MnDOT's obligation to determine who appellant's witnesses are going to be for him. Appellant makes much of the fact that MnDOT could have simply reached out to their own witnesses, their own employees, but they were not actually MnDOT employees at this point in time. But, but for us, the real question is, were there lesser uh, remedies than exclusion available at this point, and did the judge abuse his discretion by failing uh, to consider those lesser included alternatives, which would include things sure. like um, the you have to provide these witnesses for deposition at your expense, that sure. being uh, Mr. And, Goosen. And I'd like to address this relatively quickly before I turn to the reasonable accommodation analysis given, mm-hmm. given time constraints here. Under the plain language of the rule, Unless the untimely disclosure was substantially justified or harmless, exclusion is the default self-executing sanction. While it's true that the rule provides 
that the court may impose alternative sanctions other than exclusion, this is only the case on motion. Appellant's counsel just admitted that she did not bring a motion seeking a lesser sanction and did not request a lesser sanction during oral argument below. As a result, it was not an abuse of discretion for the district court to refuse to consider the affidavits rather than entertain a lesser sanction. The district court exercised, the district court was in the best position to make a determination about substantial justification and harm. And in doing so, it exercised a core discretionary function and made a decision that's entirely consistent with the rules in this court's precedent. Now, turning back to the reasonable accommodation analysis. Well, I just want to briefly touch on the fact that without a reasonable accommodation, I think there is no genuine dispute that appellant cannot perform the essential functions of the HEFM position. Once he hits his permanent restrictions, he cannot perform 70% of his job duties, if not more. For now, but now on the first time on appeal and without any supporting evidence, appellant makes the case that he can perform beyond his permanent restrictions. But appellant's position amounts to nothing more than a subjective disagreement with his physician. And under Eighth Circuit precedent, Minot was not required to ignore his doctor's orders, as explained by the Eighth Circuit in the Alexander case. The only remaining issue, then, is whether there are any genuine issues of material fact that appellant failed to make a facial showing that a reasonable accommodation was possible. Other than stretch breaks, appellant makes no attempt to identify a reasonable accommodation that would allow him to perform the essential functions of his previous position. Mindat, however, made significant efforts to see if, he could, if it could accommodate appellant. Mindat determined it could not accommodate the remote field work, that any accommodations involving other mechanics assisting with or performing appellant's duties would likely cause them to work longer and harder hours, which this court's precedent finds unreasonable, and that any accommodation related to the repair and maintenance work would either reallocate or eliminate an essential function, which this too has been consistently found unreasonable in the Eighth Circuit. So appellant's argument with respect to the existence of a reasonable accommodation focuses solely on the HEM, or heavy equipment mechanic, position. We, we discussed how appellant relies almost entirely on comments made at the April 28th meeting, and I explained why that does not matter. Ultimately, it was appellant's burden to show that reassignment was possible and he needed to make a facial showing that he qualified for the position and that one was available. It is undisputed that there were no vacant positions. I also want to briefly address appellant's assertion that the reason he was given was that he could not enter and exit heavy equipment. That is incorrect, and it is belied by appellant's own deposition testimony. At Joint Appendix 76, appellant testified that his supervisor told him that MnDOT could not accommodate him as a heavy equipment mechanic because once he reached his restrictions, someone else would need to take over, which is essentially the same reason given for the HEFM position. Next, appellant did bring up his supervisor mentioning the entering and exiting comment, but then continued by saying that MnDOT went on to say more and stuff like that. There is nothing in the record that shows that this was the only reason given by MnDOT. And I think we've already covered the affidavits in, in sufficient detail. Um, so unless your honors have any questions about that, I can conclude by stating that the district court correctly held 
that no reasonable jury could find either that appellant was qualified to perform the essential functions of the HEFM position or that a reasonable accommodation was possible. And the district court did not abuse its discretion by excluding the untimely witness affidavits under Rule 37C1. For these reasons, and those stated in Midnight's briefing, I respectfully request the court to affirm in its entirety. Thank you, Your Honors. Ms. Jeanette, I know that you were over your time a bit. Is there something you'd like to add very briefly? Yes, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I just have one quick point that I'd just like to make. We'll give her a minute. Um, So if you take a look at App 190, um, that is the uh, MnDOT report of workability for work injuries that Dr. McCarty filled out. And um, if you take a look at kind of in the midsection um, under employees' capabilities, um, Dr. McCarty, uh, one of the questions is, um, you know, how much time can a person work with their upper extremities? And it divides it up between right and left and both. Dr. McCarty said he checked the boxes for upper extremities, I'm sorry, for right upper extremity, eight plus hours. For left upper extremity, six to seven hours. For both, six to seven hours. So, and then in another section, Dr. McCarty limited him to no more than three hours on the outstretched arms. So essentially, that demonstrates that um, Mr. Goosen could work with his upper extremities, you know, with his elbows bent for four, six, seven, or eight, or more hours. Um, And that is the only point I need to make. (laughs) All right. Thank Thank you. you. Um, And I did want to thank you very much for your willingness to accept a pro se appointment. Oh, uh, thank you. Which, uh, through the District Court and the Federal Bar Association of Minnesota, it's really important work, and uh, we appreciate that you're willing to take that work. So I appreciate your comment, but I need to clarify. So my office mate, Beth Bertelson, is actually the person who um, undertook the pro se um, representation of Mr. Goosen, and then I... Um, um, became his lawyer, um, his actual lawyer, not a pro se lawyer, on October 25. And so um, that was Beth Bertelson from my office who, who undertook that. So. Well, somebody in your firm took one for yeah, right. the team, and, I'm, <laughs> and I appreciate that. <laughs> so let's call the next case then. Twenty-three fifteen forty, Roderick Scott, the United States.